Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers episode. Uh, this week we've got a special guest in the form of Ryan Hoiberg. Ryan is the agribusiness recruitment uh, specialist at Rimfire Resources, and given uh, what we've been hearing around uh, the traps with regards to or not just contract labour, but also just general labour issues, we thought we'd get Ryan in to have a chat. But um, Andrew, before we go to Ryan, we we it would be remiss of me if I don't thank someone at the weekend that gave us a great deal of help on the pig farm. Um, one of the neighbours, uh, Steve, our, our, our new friend at the pig farm, came up and gave us a big hand uh, when our JCB broke down and moved a bit of straw for us, which was an absolute lifesaver. And, um, Andrew, when you were chatting to him, um, he put two and two together after, what, half an hour and realised that the Scottish accent was uh, familiar and he was an actual podcast listener as well as a, a neighbour to the pig farm. No, so got to thank big Stevie Brown for uh, for helping us out. Big big lifesaver, and uh, it was it was funny to get to that point after after half an hour of talking that he actually knew who we were. So was a big lifesaver. You could say that was the uh, the sponsor of the week. <laughs> Podcast brought to you by uh, our neighbour in his John Deere tractor. Thanks very much. Yeah. But so, no, we've got right, we've got Ryan on. So um, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Um, do you want to? Give us a, just a, the listeners a quick rundown. I'm sure the listeners have a fair idea of what you do there at Rimfire, but just give us a, a quick summary of, um, of what goes on. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me, guys. As I sort of said to the start, uh, first time, long time. Been listening for a while and enjoyed and not enjoyed some of them, but mostly enjoyed a lot of the uh, tales that have been told. But, uh, yeah, so my name's uh, Ryan. I, I work for uh, Rimfire Resources, Um we're an agribusiness and human resource uh, consultancy group um, based across um, all of Australia. I'm in our Melbourne office, um, have been with Rimfire on and off for about 12 years um, and six or seven of the last six or seven years been um, one of our consultants in our Melbourne office of two. So we, we sort of work across a broad number of industries, broad levels of recruitment um, and you know, have a chat here and there to both candidates and clients around what they're looking for um, and, you know, try to solve all those issues for them and um, also on the other end provide information around how, the, you know, the job market's looking and um, relevant to exactly what our industries are doing versus, you know, the broader recruitment sector. Can I, can I just go back a step? You said that you listened to the podcast, yeah? Yes. And you said you enjoyed most of them. Yes. Which ones didn't you enjoy? I reckon it's not specific episodes. It's sometimes when I'm actually interested in what the guest or the topic is, but then, Andrew, sometimes you come out with some strange sort of versions of what's happened to yourself specifically, and I sort of start listening going, all right, this." and having spoken to you, I think I mentioned before, you know, off and online, um, hearing the tangents, and that sometimes our conversations in the past have gone for over an hour. Uh, I sometimes get used to hearing how long this might go for. So so that was more specific to that. Um but yeah, no, I think sometimes, especially, you know, I'm saying even back in the old days of the other podcasts, I was sort of listening to that and, and always quite enjoyed sort of what you guys were producing. So I think it's always interesting hearing, you know, those guys or, and, and your, your guests talk about what they're actually really passionate about too, which is always interesting to sort of hear that versus what's actually happening in the industry. So is, is it fear of that we're about to go down a rabbit hole when you're listening you think, oh shit, this is. Shit, uh, shit, shit, these guys, are, these guys are going to go off on a tangent and not even speak about what the person what was the here for. I was going to say, you know, <laughs> is you know, is, are we going to get back on topic here, or is this going to be some weird story from back in the homeland versus you know <laughs> what's happened? <laughs> so, 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 basically, you're worried that you know when when you listen to us and and, and when when I start speaking and when Matt starts speaking that it's going to go completely off topic. Well see, I think a, maybe a bit like what's happening just now. Yeah, correct. I think <laughs> be, maybe I haven't come across Matt as much. I'm actually interested in hearing Matt's, but I reckon Andrew I've heard the stories from you before, so I sometimes can go this isn't a short one. <laughs> my, my, my role is to put my role is to pull us back onto track, Ryan. Um when when Andrew starts mentioning his auntie Julie or you know, <laughs> what his mum Linda's doing or you know he's you know he ref- References my family in Hungary. I, or my, say, I should say my um, my uh, in-laws in Hungary. Devil's advocate. I'd suggest yeah. again, as in, having listened, I also know that's not true as well. So <laughs> I'm just not. I'm just not going to say anything for the next thirty minutes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do a CFMEU and I'm going to go on strike. Right. You know, well, you're just saying they're outside your office, aren't they? At the moment, having another protest. 
Uh, no, they're outside my house. I, I'm, oh, I'm, your house. I, I, I'm in, they're outside my house on Saturday. I'm in Richmond. So they literally were on my street um, having a bit of a party. So, uh, yeah, can say firsthand of being actively, accidentally involved in one of the protests. <laughs> see, 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 Ryan, I would, I would go on a tangent, Ryan. And talk about when I used to live outside Ibrox, but I That's spoke to you about that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't, right, get, a, you didn't right. get a chance to throw throw a bottle at um, John Setka from your from your balcony or in the ladder, or you just no, just no. Watched? So that one's in the city. So that one was yesterday. Oh. Um, okay. But uh, and I think they're off in the city again near Vic yeah, Markets today. So today is Queen Vic Markets, and yeah, Richmond. They decided to go Richmond on Saturday, and I'm just in the middle of Richmond. All right. So anyway, thanks for thanks for taking us off topic, Ryan. Uh, you, you can almost be part of the team here. Yeah. So, so recruitment. Yeah, we, we know recruitment. We've seen we've seen the uh, the issues at the moment with uh, getting farm labour. Big issue around the country. Uh, whether you're horticulture, grain, or, or shearers, what what we wanted to sort of look at was things like what about the other end of the spectrum? Hmm. The uh, the the professionals, I guess, not that's not the right word. Everyone's a professional, but the the agribusiness sort of, the you know the office based sort of people, the professionals, the graduates. How are things going in that space? Oh, look, look, pretty much exactly the same. To be oh, different, different reasons, but very similar in the sense of uh, exceptionally challenging recruitment market. To be honest, so so I think it's a there's sort of two trends of what you can refer to it as either as a candidate so if you're looking for a job versus if you're a business trying to find someone and if you're a business trying to find someone it's probably the hardest market to find skilled uh, professionals um, both um, you know geographically um, role-based and even sort of um, industry-based that they're all sort of hitting the marks and and that's even you know not nothing to do with the labor market almost so we would refer to those more blue collar white collar to your point is this uh, when you say it's you know it's, it's tricky finding the right candidates in in that i guess you'd call it the the full-time kind of salary positions rather than the contract laborers um is that is that because of a supply issue mainly that the people just aren't there or is it or is it just that the industry's growing a lot and the demand's not keeping up with the with the supply because i know there's been a bit of talk over the last probably say five years where there's been a lot more and particularly kids from non-farming backgrounds that are looking at ag as a as a you know, pathway in terms of going to uni to learn about ag, whether it's the you know, environment, ag environment type stuff or ag economic stuff, um, you know, ag agribusiness. You know, there's a lot of kids choosing it as a um, tertiary study, but that's still not necessarily providing candidates that are available. Well, so it's sort of there's two different real splits there, sort of in terms of trends. So, so yes, in terms of the the studies perspective, um, it, it sort of ebbs and it ebbs and flows with the rest of the actual recruitment market, to be honest. So, so, so it's probably changed over the last five years in the sense of, you know, ten years traditionally there was the broader recruitment sort of programs that it was pretty well known of where you go into the market versus the last five years um, across the different tertiary institutes. It's it's very much always been very we almost know where those students are going to go. So we run a program called GradLink and, and we actually literally will go out and speak at all those universities and, and final year students to sit and interview them around where they're going to go. And if you go to all those careers days, you often can tell which are the same companies that are going to be there and um, who, who will, you know, if they're an Adelaide student, they've probably got pretty strong viticultural or horticultural versus UNE sort of stronger in livestock. Melbourne and um, Sydney are always pretty sort of different trends. So, to your point, correct, that there's a lot of people that are now attending those technical or agribusiness roles that aren't coming from farming backgrounds. And, and there's, a real, there's a real issue then of those people coming from non-regional roles actually moving regionally. So, so that you're producing maybe sort of more people coming from a graduate level that doesn't actually imply the talents being spread um, across a regional perspective. Uh, and, and also, it's also people then changing their mind around do we want a traditional graduate coming off property, um, maybe sort of grown up in the area that's gone and done the degree and coming back versus taking somebody that's grown up um, in town, done the degree, maybe done a couple of placements and taking that risk. Uh, and that that's also then fluctuated with the number of international students who do graduate, who do ag degrees and don't actually then enter the industry at all. Sorry. Historically, um, just when you are saying about that, issue about i guess geographic spread and and with ag but some ag based places having 
you know, a big part of their business outside of the capitals. Yep. Was was that it? Was it an issue historically um, getting people to go and then if they if they get that job in the regions because it's an ag-based kind of executive role? Or I guess some of the executive roles are probably in, in the city anyway. But you know, what I'm saying like middle management or, or something in those space in the productions. Was it always hard to get people to those areas if they weren't from a regional background? And is that now changing because of COVID? Is is it becoming so COVID, COVID's probably thrown a different spanner in it. But so to answer your first question, um, not really. That that was probably not the issue. That I mean, the the programs that were probably being run by say a NAB or an Elders or all those sort of programs are actually or AA Co sort of up north. Like they're actually pretty well designed to move you around as you go through the program. So by entering that program, you're actually aware you're going to be based regionally anyway. Um, that's probably not the issue. That's the top tier talent that's sort of always going to sort of be filtering through every year. It's really um, a lack of sort of maybe that sort of bottom tier talent that has then been able to give a role because there's just the option to give them. So, so some businesses, you know, they might be looking to hire five grads. If they get two very good ones, they'll walk away and go great, but there's still three roles that they've said, no, look, that's not the talent we're looking for. And, and that's based on a, you know, a number of issues that might arise. Um, it, it's not really down to region. And, and, you know, then there's also the historical schools of say Marcus does a lot through sending people onto farm and, and doing a lot more sort of farm management type candidates. But, you know, there's only a certain number of cohorts that come through Marcus and often they're going back through their own family or sort of related. So, so if you look at Marcus's, you know, graduating pool, it's actually quite limited who goes into industry, um, but they're probably well known for their farm management sort of process. So on, in a production versus an office-based sort of environment, it's it's a challenge. And then coming into COVID, COVID, um, I mean, this year is probably the most, it's the toughest graduate. It's again, across sort of what we've said, it's the toughest graduating, uh, sorry, uh, recruitment Paul, we've ever seen from a graduating um, sort of sector. There, there are some industries that have done some quite interesting stuff to attract graduates into their space, which I can go into, which, for example, the hoard industry has done a lot around um, preempting what they've done over the last sort of four to five years. But at the moment, in terms of graduates, um, COVID's really, uh, I think, un, there's just a lot of unenthused individuals coming out. And so, for example, I was at, you know talking to the tribe on Wednesday and, they were saying they've had across their number of degrees, so finance, economics, whatever it is, no one's interested. So, so students are coming out and they're just not engaging in getting jobs. There, are, There's a lot of people that aren't interested in, in the Victorian cohort specifically. Um, and, and ag, we've seen that as well as what's happened probably, and, and this is an educated guess, is um, candidates who are coming from property have probably been hit up by family members they already know or areas they know to say, hey, look, we're going to be short of seasonal people coming in this year. So in August, sorry, in April, March, they sort of lined them up and said, hey, we're going to get you this sort of job, give you some fantastic money to come sit on a tractor. But come to September, July, a lot of the corporate groups who are used to having a number of intake of uh, graduates are just not seeing them because they're just not interested either or they're already locked away so um it's it's a real or or the other piece too is if they were to do the role they have to relocate to a state and and with those issues around it why would you almost is the attitude of the graduates what's the like that's the graduate side of thing yeah we obviously you've got different spectrums you've got the graduates you've got the mid-career you've got late career it's probably someone in the middle there as well. But what is the uh, what is the hardest to actually get staff at the moment? Are they oh, all e- equally difficult or? Look, it's a tough, that's a very wide bracket. I mean, because we work across basically anything from farm gate through to advisory and industry groups. So so that's a very broad spectrum of um, roles you're doing. Look, if, if somebody was to come to me and say, you know, we want an agronomist, um, a technical agronomist with a number of years, in a regional location, that's a four to five month search almost. Assuming that'll be a four to five month search, top of your head. Um, what about what about analysts, market analysts? Quite easy. I've, I've heard it's very uneducated, very unskilled. <laughs> a lot of self made hot air around it. Um, is is what I've heard. So no, analysts. Well, look, even the analyst markets are quite an interesting space because you get a bit of an interesting blend of people coming out of, say, the traditional. traditional... I thought you were going to say a blend of decades and a blend of (laughs) (laughs) expats that come in and tell you how to do it. Um, No, no, it's an interesting blend of you know the top four um, or or even the traditional agri advisory groups who will who will poach from a more say traditional and non traditional market in the space. 
But then if they're coming into it, there's also candidates that think that advisory or analytical space is a lot more broader than it is. And then it can be if you're in like a Macquarie or a, you know, a broader group like that. But then if you speak to those candidates, I think they think there's a lot more roles in the industry. So, so again, if you go to try to find someone, any of this recruitment is often restricted by geographic and uh, all these other elements that suddenly the assumption that there's a lot of roles in that space is actually, you know, not the case. And, and you're assuming that somebody's already trained somebody to get into a five-year experience when you're looking for a mid-tier type employee as well. Um, with the with the move to industry, I guess, getting more familiar with things like online processes, does that geographic element start to diminish? Do, do, you know, are businesses now getting to the stage where they don't they don't really necessarily think that they need to have people in a dedicated site unless it, I mean, obviously it's Difficulty depends on the rule. If you're an, if you're an yeah. agronomist, you'll need to be in the you field. Got to, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. If you're a production <laughs> and it makes it a bit hard if, to do if, it. If, from, if you're a livestock truck driver, you can't do it from Melbourne. <laughs> you know? so, so to answer your question in a broader sense, we do a number of surveys and information sort of conversations with HR groups every year as part of a HR survey and a tool that we, we function in. That sort of essentially allows us to understand what trends or salary gaps or information that we can then provide to the broader the broader area. Um, in terms of COVID, there was essentially a fairly strong group of people that suggested 2020 between sort of July and June 2020, 21, they were 50% had to alter their stance on how they allowed their office-based employees to have either flexible conditions or working from home. Um, but a number of those indicated that they uh, were going to be temporary sort of fixes. So the, the issue that will arise, and, and I think this is also reflective of the current recruitment pool, is candidates that have got used to what their situation is versus what they're being told by their current employer they will be returning to or have already returned to um, versus what they're seeking that they found last year worked quite well for them. And, and that's across both our industry and also the broader industry. Um, and, you know, I think also that's reflective of some of those industries didn't really have to make a big transition for a long period of time. So, um, again, from those businesses we pulled, 26% indicated they were already back to working pre-COVID style anyway. Does it, is it like, like if you're in Melbourne, yeah, for, for instance, if, if you one of the, I'm just thinking of any of, any of the companies that work in Melbourne, have a head office in, in Melbourne CBD. The, the difference between them and the equivalent in Perth yep. would be quite distinct because Perth has been locked down for about two weeks in the last year. 100%. We've been locked down for what? Five years, something yeah. like that. Uh, so, 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 so like getting back to normal is going to be like in, in Melbourne would have to be a hell of a lot different because like we've, we've visited offices in Melbourne in between lockdowns. And and they've been empty, like not even the keyboards on the desks and stuff. And they've been almost been like the Vikings have come through and ransacked everything from the office. <laughs> so it's going to be harder to get people back into that. Well, if not that as well, will somebody else offer that? Is the interesting hmm. thing from a recruitment perspective of, and, and sometimes it's not even dictated locally because it might be a local sort of business, but they will be guideline, guided by a, as you say, national policy or even some Asia Pacific policy as well. So um, there's others that will be almost told they have to return or they can't return um, and, and which one of that will work for the candidates. So, so, for example, we've done some recruitment recently and the candidates have actually clearly indicated to us, I want to work as part of a team environment. When will that be available? And if okay. there's businesses that have indicated that won't be happening until a certain period of time, that's actually something people are taking on board as part of a broader, you know, um, plan of what do they want to do and where are they getting their satisfaction from as well and and, and vice versa do they have as, to as, as, i was going to say is it anecdotally is it sort of like half 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 want to work in the office half want to oh work from... i think it comes almost down to your categories of what you're saying then of and and as a hr professional i'd be hesitant to ever you know use those terminologies around how people are you know measured but i, I think you know more um experienced individuals in their career have uh maybe family or other commitments they want to sort of do where they've moved regionally and they're sort of well-structured in their role. But then the sacrifice from the business has to be is if you're letting those experienced staff members work from home, um, what what are you losing as part of your team to be able to develop staff underneath them as well? And having that talent be 
external from the office, what are you losing by not having that in a t- thinking, for example, from a trading house or a, um, a broader commodity group? You know, you, the attraction to a lot of those businesses is that internal stakeholder engagement. Um, so by allowing that senior staff to do that, but then do you risk losing that senior staff um, because you don't allow that type of uh, that process? Yeah. And look, and I just think from our point of view, Matt, we we obviously work separately. You are mm. you are you are definitely definitely senior to me, in 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 age in age. That's mm. uh, yeah, it. But we but we do we sort of adapted to it pretty well, you know. Through you know we we talk on the phone for. Like you said, Ryan, I tend to waffle on quite a lot. So well, well, my my wife refers to you as, as as my boyfriend, so we must be talking <laughs> fairly regularly. But 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 we are able to communicate and sort of exchange ideas and whatnot, and we use WhatsApp and whatever else. But it would be hard for other people to adapt. And I also wonder what this is. This might not be something you can answer, but does it change when the candidate's got kids? Ah. Uh, yeah, because I, 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 I was just wondering if, like, say, for instance, uh, I, I can see it both ways. Yeah. If you've got if you've got kids, I don't want to work at home. <laughs> <laughs> or I think you know I think there's also there's so, so two elements I'd probably add to that conversation is also so again as part of that sort of um, uh, the review that we did and the surveying we did interesting sort of trend was. You know, um, in June last year, uh, six, 97% of businesses said it was a somewhat or very effectively working having employees from home. That dropped by about 15% by November. So, so what we saw was the trend of people working longer from home versus the short-term fix did actually start to imp- impact what businesses saw as effectively working. And, and I think also that was probably seen as, what are they taking advantage of the market as it changed as well and, and you know, as they had the opportunity to grow? Um, and, and the other point I'd make around that is um, that uh, as you sort of transition and, and go through it, it also sometimes is down to what are you trying to achieve as a team versus are you an, indiv- are you an autonomous type individual? And, and that actually does sometimes affect who that people might be recruiting as well. Um, it sounds like, Ryan, you guys do, I mean, apart from the, the, the actual work you do at finding the right candidates and, and whatnot, you do a fair bit of surveying to understand, you know, what's going on and trends and, and, and that kind of stuff within the sector and with, across maybe different, um, you know, industry types that you cover. But I'm just curious, um, as part of that surveying, is there are there things that stand out um, as maybe the key reasons why people look to leave a place of employment? Is there, is there a top three, you know, in terms of costs for, for leaving? And, and equally, is there a top three of, of, you know, things that make a job attractive to people, you know? Yeah, um, so I think probably it, it changes, obviously, again, as you go through different categories of individuals and, and how you go. Um, first of all, it's probably around, you know, the, the classic one is salary. Salary is always a retention and also sometimes an area that people will leave. I think salary in 2020 got parked. Now it's become a bigger issue for people. So what happened last year was a big trend of businesses saying, hey, we don't know what's happening. We're not going to do that review versus this year. Um, you know, CPI, the ABS has increased their sort of metrics of most people getting a 1% to 3% increase of salary this year. Our sort of trend of salaries sort of been between 1.5% of increase of um, salaries through up till the June quarter. So, so, so there's clearly companies are sort of responding going, right, well, we did sort of park those responses. So now that people aren't, um, that's another piece. Um, second, second is probably a, a more common element of what we see people coming into is job security. That That's changed as well. So, you know, security of the most common call we, we might get is, hey, you know, so-and-so, there's rumours about this business sort of taking over or there's rumours about this, what else is going on? I'm just interested in sort of scoping out for myself. And then what happens is suddenly a business goes out there and they go through a bit of a, you know, tra- transition maybe themselves in ownership. Suddenly candidates start to think about themselves and they realise they're a bit of a, um, you know, commodity themselves. So they need to start to look at number one. Um, the machine. Yeah, correct. And I think that's a really big trend we see in people's careers at certain points is they start to realise when they want to transition out of that or, or some people just enjoy it as well. Um, and, and probably third reason, cultural is a, is a big thing too. So culturally, um, that, that would be a big area of 
you know, responding to management. Um, I, I think sometimes people don't take for granted, but it is a really important metric of seeing your business being, you know, progressive around cultural sort of um, areas. And, and it might be, especially in our industry, which can be sort of old school in some areas, um, seen as a very small metric. But, you know, OH&S is a big thing on site. It's also sometimes a big thing around that sort of mental wellness off um, offsite and in head offices as well. And um, I think COVID last year really threatened a lot of businesses because if you suddenly have production having a one policy of you're working through this first head office is working from home, it almost makes a bit of an us first them sort of mentality in most bigger organisations. And um, that was a real sort of trap a lot of businesses had to avoid pretty effectively last year. And, and even this year, it's still continued that way. And, and I think coming into it again this year, it's a bit of a, well, what, what, what are you doing for my mental wellness as well as my safety on site as well? Yeah, see, I, I would have thought, I know I've seen a few stuff done over the years where they always claim that people leave a job not because of the salary primarily, right? It's usually other, you know, from my, and certainly from my experience as well, I've never, I've never kind of, you know, left a job because of the salary consideration. I've always left a job because I was dissatisfied with, you know, what was happening with regards to, you know, whether it's, a, you know, the, the way management were operating or that just, you know, that you just kind of, um, you know, lost interest is not, not probably the right phrase, but, um, you know, maybe. But I, think, I, think, I think sometimes it's also that the time has come and, and you sort of, you, you sort of think you've, I, I always see a job as being a thing to learn from. Mm. And, and so I, I still, I still consider myself to be relatively young and, over compared the years, to compared, compared to you, to <laughs> uh, but but over the years you sort of spend you know a couple of years in a job, you learn about something, you move on to another one, and and it's you know once you get to a certain level of you know you've not necessarily mastered the job, but you feel that there's not much more for you to to give yeah. or, or get from it. You move on. Well, I think that's the bit too. I think you're whenever we sort of advise companies or even candidates around why what you should approach people with or how to head on, you know that that type of what we do. Salary is often not the area you t- you focus on. You you focus on a broader element, and it's not an area that people will lead with. But it's an area people will come to, you know, want to address. But but it, it also changes as you go through spaces too. So you got to remember where we are probably at a market at the moment is there's been two years um, or so eighteen months of sort of wider issues with COVID. Prior to that, there was the drought through the east coast and a few industries that didn't see much profit and saw restrictions in headcount. So if you're a candidate at that time going to your employer saying, hey, I want an increase, but, you know, another office has just been shut down or a store has been shut down, you're probably keeping your head down a little bit versus what's seeing at the moment is a record number of jobs being advertised um, both on our rural job index and Seek's records have all been broken. There's a record number of, sorry, there's a record least number of candidates applying for jobs meaning there's, uh, and anecdotally, I'll talk to a number of sales managers and managers who would say their staff's being approached by X, Y, Z to try to find people for roles. And, and what naturally happens with that is people will say, start throwing around ridiculous numbers and then rumours sort of start to spread around salary. And, and while salary isn't a driver, salary becomes a, an issue of satisfaction. So if you're not satisfied with any of those other metrics you've done, it does become an element going, God, so Matt's just left for an extra X amount. Um, why am I putting up with this when I should answer those calls or look at those jobs? And, and it's the same as if you're hiring, you, you suddenly realise how hard it is to find candidates in the current market. You probably also, it, it's a bit of a candidate-driven market. So you can have people sort of being there, but also what, what, is the, what is the guard around that from a business and what people have to be really safe for is not hiring because of salary. So if somebody's coming to me and saying, what are you paying? Well, that's a red flag to us saying, well, that's not the right person for this job because yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a short-term six-month, nine-month backfill, which you don't want to do. So, so it's really, you know, you've got to, and, and at the current, the current traps of um, the recruitment market is not falling for that issue of trying to fill the spot without having the right person and being driven by those conversations which just yeah i don't i don't think they find the right solution yeah well as you and andrew were talking i was kind of thinking of because i've changed i've haven't just changed jobs over my time i've changed total careers you know a few times i think five times now i've changed what i'd call career so you know um and and each time the career change the window between career changes got shorter and shorter but i'm very comfortable what i'm doing now but when i when i assess what i what made me make the decision to change ryan it was 
if I could summarise, it was actually I just stopped enjoying the job. You know, now whether that was the simulation of what the job provided, you know, is a challenge or a minute, or, or like Andrew said, I not that you'd learnt everything about it, but it felt like you weren't. You're just doing growing. the same day in day out. It comes a grind. Yeah, and or yeah. or if you're working with a group or or a team, um, you know, and, and the dynamic of the team changed. Um, you stopped enjoying working for that team you know, or with that team, you know. Look, and, and I'm um, the same. I'm sort of thinking in, in five to ten years, I might become a carpenter. You know, I might I might get the woodwork tools out, and that's something I enjoy in my hobby. I could be making making cabinets and whatnot, doing woodwork. Well, I mean, whatever makes you happy, mate. That's the other exactly, advice I'll give you. That's yeah. I mean, is that because is that a bit of a Jesus complex? I was just going to well? say. I was going to say with the facial hair, it's a bit of a Jesus issue going on. <laughs> I wasn't sure exactly which way we were leaning with that type yeah. of conversation. Well, that was that was a you, Matt. You know, I like woodwork. Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. You know, I'm. You know, and you're I, used I, to you're used to being around tools. Yeah, just, just, especially especially at the moment. Uh, but no, but but you you know that I like woodwork. You also know that I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy it. <laughs> just, just you, you, you can, you can be rubbish at something, but enjoy it. Uh, mm. But, but mm. maybe in ten years' time, I'll, I'll go and do a. a wood so we're, de- we're deviating again, then. I'm just going to pull this back because there was another. Because I always mentioned another... something is uh, you mentioned the rural jobs index. Yes. What's that? So, so that's a, a metric which we use to basically align with where the job market is going in our industry versus the broader seek sort of metrics. So, so room five run, we, we have a person who literally counts and has counted since 2007 um, adverts that are permanent roles from a production versus through to CEO level. Um, and that'll allow us to basically give um, metrics around how the industry is performing versus what the turnover looks like and, and compare that to Seek. So Seek releases um, monthly reports of um, import employment metrics. I mean, last year provided an unbelievable comparison in terms of what happened with COVID and the performance of the rural sort of space. So, so what you, you see is um, anecdotally, I might say to you, hey, you know, it's really hard to find people at the moment um, versus you know, you might say to me, well, I'm, I'm putting up an ad and I'm just getting a, a lot of applicants. And, and you know, that's fairly well driven by how many other adverts are in there. It, it's the same as anything else. If you put a lot of adverts out there, there's a lot more people sort of going to be applying versus, you know, if there's a, if there's a flood of adverts, there's going to be less people applying because there's going to be less people sort of interested in that broader space and they're very specifically looking. So, so last year, you know, we would measure between sort of, I actually prepared this because I know you guys like stats. Um, so... Um, Last year, so from twenty twenty, sorry, from twenty seventeen to twenty twenty, the average job numbers we saw was around four thousand three hundred and four. Specifically, not around four thousand three hundred and four. Um, last year, twenty twenty, broke a number of records that we saw, which was month on month increase compared to the last year. So, to give you an example, um, in April last year of twenty twenty. Seek had a 70% decrease in month-on-month comparison to the year before. So 70% less jobs for our industry in the height of COVID, it was 10%. So the rural job index only ducked down 10% compared to last year. Last year in October, it peaked at 70% year-on-year increase. So, So we saw a significant increase. And then that's last year, sort of the performance against the generic market. The Seek's adverts only ever caught up from last year of the year before in December. And that was literally caught up to what they had done the year before with no increases. Yeah. We only had two or three months which dipped below a 0% sort of mark. Um, this year, so c- coming into that 4,300 mark, this year up until August, we've already measured 6,184 jobs within the industry. So, so we've already breached and, that record by almost two-thirds and we're up to August. And those those jobs are a big, a wide spectrum of jobs. That's So, so basically any, any type of rural agricultural job. So, so, so that's so, 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 permanent, permanent. So not permanent, job, not, 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 not temp jobs, whatever, not contract. Correct. And not yet. So effectively what you're saying is, you know, there's, there's a big demand. Effectively, that's what we're saying. Well, it's essentially companies yelling out for help or support and needing, needing people. So supply is relatively constrained. Are, are we seeing more and more people coming in who might have experience might be a, a procurement professional in one industry like they might be in the our hire business or anything any yep. business and then they're saying maybe agriculture's 
for us. So, so what we see, it it's, depends on the role if you're transferable or not for sure. And then that's always been the case, pre or post COVID. That's not really going to change. And you know, if you can't, if you're a grain merchant, you're really probably not going to be coming from a another broader industry versus an agronomist as a technical type role. That that's always the case, which is where we see a lot of graduates sort of try to be pushed into those spaces versus say logistics and uh, the export market at the moment you would be crazy to not look at someone outside of the market because you almost just need help to be able to source what's happened and um you know an increase of conversations we've had over the last couple of months is getting dedicated resources into operations logistics export focused roles to allow the operations across the broader spectrum to sort of focus so you're then looking for comparable areas. And, and, and export's actually quite er- easy because you've just got to be across, you know, container, aqueous and all those other areas versus, you know, th- the area that's probably the toughest to convert is accountants and finances because mm-hmm. that's actually quite a, t- uh, uh, in our industry, it's actually quite a tough role to find people that can indicate to coordinate and communicate effectively internally, but also with, you know, if they're chasing money from farmers, mm-hmm. it's going to be different from someone coming out of Telstra that's chasing somebody for a debt that you owe for your phone. Um, and that's always been the case. It's quite hard to transition people into those roles without having both an understanding of what they're doing in communication versus shipping. It's a little bit different. You, you've got to be able to get it. But what happens, though, is if you're in the shipping market at the moment, you're paying for the right person. So you're almost sort of trying to find who can come help you and understands the container market, but knowing all the other industries are doing it as well. So really, when, when, when you look at that, sorry, Matt, but when you look at yeah. that sort of, let's call it the RGI, uh, you really, it's kind of almost a barometer of, of the industry in general. It's almost as like, I wonder, I wonder if at some point you could share the data with us and we could chart it against, you know, some other indicators like the value of agriculture, because that would be quite an interesting one to see if, if there's a correlation between job numbers and profitability of the industry in general. So, so we and again, on a, on a HR, so this is what we would do for some clients is what we do to that but we'd also compare it to, you know, um, CPI increases or, or a few other sort of broader um, ABS sort of numbers that would allow it to do it. And, and really what it's reflective of is honestly what you sort of feel of, of, or, you know, vibe around sort of, oh, it's tough or it's doing pretty well. It's pretty reflective of that. Um, and the job market's often the case of what, what it actually does is give you a bit of insight into where roles are coming out of. So, you know, Precision Ag has been popping up for the last sort of three mm. or four years in certain roles. And, and that's been an interesting trend to see how that's evolved versus, you know, there's other roles, which will get a lot of calls from candidates. So I'll get a lot of calls. I want to be a trader. I can't tell you the other, the last time businesses put up trader roles. So, right. so you know, it's, and, and, and I literally read seek every morning from a broader agri perspective and get five emails a morning. All I do is read adverts that are put out in the industry. So it's sort of, you're across what's happening. Um, but it's funny what people think of the trends versus, you know, where actually people are wanting. And, and that's where that, you know, to your question before, Matt, that's where the university piece comes really quite interestingly into where do those degrees start to go. And, and you see a bit of a trend there around who's sponsoring, um, you know, university groups and trying to develop their own people as well. So, Ryan, are there, are there broad sectors, other sectors other than ag experiencing a similar type situation with that low supply demand or, oh. and and conversely are there sectors that are that are actually oversupplied with with workers and hospitality you know, <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't going to name any specifically but i was just curious you know it's not just a it's not just an economic phenomenon or a or a lack of migration phenomenon that's playing out now it's actually changing fundamentals to the to the industry specific kind of correct so so that was probably the bit that i think caught your eye the other day andrew something we shared on linkedin was the seeks metrics this year have been incredible for how poor how how wide their data has been sort of similar to ours so so three times this year seeks broke that broken their monthly advertisement rates um i mentioned before that they've got metrics around the least amount of applicants and in, in, across the board it, it, and it's it's funny i mentioned a couple of those other broader sectors we recruit in those broader sectors and it's um verbatim exactly the same so so you'd be surprised how little applicants you're getting for what would be generic roles um versus last year we actually saw a high increase in like i remember putting up an ea role and getting 100 and 180 applicants in two or three days uh, in in july last year because everybody else was panicked and saw ag as a really interesting space to come into versus now, you know, I have a number of friends in, in broader recruitment roles and it's exactly the same. If you go on LinkedIn, all you see is sort of information about candidate shortages. Um, and, and ironically, the one one that I had heard was doing okay was construction and property in Melbourne. 
um, but uh, that might now have been cooked. Um, there might be a short, another shortage of candidates when they all get locked up. Well, correct, or <laughs> when they all sort of line them up again. But I, I think, you know, lockdowns don't, short lockdowns, you don't see an issue in short lockdowns. Long lockdowns do hurt job numbers, and Seek's numbers from August probably highlight that. Um, there is a dip in sort of adverts that have been put up and, and business confidence around recruiting. But across the board, it, it's... Um, it's metric of there's been no overseas, um, there's been lack of overseas talent across all those roles. Lack of migration also sees people doing it. But also the other areas of it is people are also probably uncertain if you're in other industry groups of what's happening. So why would you want to leave your current role where you probably have a bit of an understanding to go into something that you're you know, completely unaware of? One of, the, um, one of the things, Ryan, that popped up on, I think it might have been LinkedIn a couple of weeks back and it got Andrew and I chatting um, was to do with there was a bit of a short just a quick one question survey on if you've ever you know gone for a job accepted it and then been given a counter offer from your existing employer whether you as in higher salary or some kind of high usually it's higher salary um, you know has anyone ever done that or do people do that is, is there is there a specific trend like given that you're in the sector and you'd be seeing those that, that they might stand out if you got the perfect candidate and then you know you think you, you think you've locked them away and then they come back and say oh I've actually decided to stay because they've counter-offered that's something yeah. that happens a lot oh look so specifically I can give you the data around that so from one of our surveys 2020 we had 38 percent of companies indicated that it's something they would be open to doing um this year we had 48 percent companies say that it's not 48 I think about 43 percent so it was about a it was a it was a clear increase of companies considering a counter offer or something they would do um, I personally, look, again, touch on wood because you're really stitching me up with the jinx here. Um, <laughs> I, I know of a couple that have happened, but I, I would suggest it's quite rare for us to probably be involved in those type of processes because you're kind of you're used to preparing. Like, I mean, we're trained around sort of knowing how to identify and what that is and, and also the advice you give to candidates around what happens if that occurs. Uh, look, I, I think me and Andrew actually were talking about this yesterday. I, I actually personally think the counter offer is a bit of a silent dagger in terms of um, both for the business and for a candidate. You can understand, but, but in the current recruitment market and the issues with around finding um, a comparable person to replace that, it's actually understandable why it's becoming a lot more of a trend to come in. Um, mm. But I mean, there's other information out there around, you know, the longevity of somebody once they've been counter-offered is very short in terms of they will still probably look for another role within six months because, as we've discussed, salary is often not the piece that people leave for. And if you do sort of turn around and say, well, here's more money, that actually kind of sometimes confirms the candidate, oh, I knew you could have paid for me. So why didn't yeah. you actually pony up? Or yeah. other people in the business will hear about it saying, well, hang on, if I just quit, I'm going to get an extra bump as well. And so it can sort of start a bit of a domino flow. So, so look, I, I do know of it and I know of situations that occur and it probably occurs more often than you'd be aware of. Um, but uh yeah, I don't think it's pretty good. It's not an area you want to go down too far. No, it's happened to me a handful of times through the different careers I've had, and I've never, not not once, really seriously considered, uh, you know, that that was a temptation. And even when there's significant interests to pay, um, yeah, generally from my perspective, it's exactly what you're saying. You, well, I think you, it's because it's driven by culture. So if you're, that's the bit that's not going to change, is it? So you're not going to turn around and go, great, we'll, we'll sack the three managers above you that you're not enjoying which most businesses aren't, they're going to go, all right, well, how much do we have to pay you to sort of be able to park that issue? That yeah. might be a short-term solution, but in three months, six months, you're still dealing with those same issues and you're probably then just going to go. So either way, it's cost both people. It's cost, it's cost the candidate because the potential employer is now not going to talk to you ever again because you've crossed them on terms of what they're going to do and your past employer is going to be annoyed at you because they've already thrown the kitchen sink and you've still reneged on it too. So Again, that's why my advice, and, and fortunately, again, touch wood, we haven't come across too many of those issues, but um, it does happen fairly regularly. Mm. Do you think there should be more transparency around people's salaries? Like, like I know sometimes when you look at... Um, well, I'm, not, I'm it, not telling you how much I get paid. <laughs> well, in I'm, a previous round, we did discuss that, uh, Andrew. I'm, I'm, and I'm, paid, was, I'm, paid, I'm paid you know, double what you're paid, so I'm on, yeah. I'm on five peanuts a week. Yeah, and you and you work, but you work half as long. So, you know, um, yeah. So, um, no, no. What I was going to say was that I was just thinking more in terms of actually a, probably a broader topic around the you know the ongoing um, issue of, of of reduced 
pay rates for females compared to males. Mm. And I did see, it might have been one of those SBS documentaries uh, a couple of weeks back where they were looking at different subsets of people that, you know, and how they get somewhat discriminated against. And, and someone made the point that if there was transparency around um, salaries, that that um, that would that could remove some of that aspect where if people could say, well, we you know within an organisation we all know what everyone gets paid and you can see what those people are doing for that pay, um, you know, so it makes it much more objective. But, that, I but guess, that's that's, that's common in European countries though. Hmm. Like I think I think it's the, the the Nordic countries. A lot of them, it's pretty open with what people are paid. It's not because it's, it's quite an Anglo-Saxon thing to be sort of. <laughs> uh, it's sort of shadowy about what you actually get paid well it's always it's quite i've always sort of saw it as you know i can't remember it was eight or nine years ago and i started sort of interviewing people number one question i used to was trained on was how to ask about salaries and how to get that sort of information and deal with that because australians just aren't used to it and then still to this day it's one of those questions we have to make sure we're well across and you know we're probably fortunate in terms of the educated conversation because of all the benchmarking we've done and experience dealing with people and candidates you kind of know what they're going to say so if they're telling you something that's either too high or too low, you kind of, it's a red flag to what we're sort of hearing or being able to give advice on. So, to, to, so I think you sort of, um, yeah, but, but for sure, to your point, Andrew, I, I think it's a massive issue with Ang- Australians that sort of don't feel comfortable with it. To, to your point about sort of transparency, Matt, I, I, think, I, I think what has been done quite well in terms of progressiveness with some of the broader people and cultural groups that exist and benefit groups exist in some of the larger agribusinesses is that they're very aware and very on top of that. The NFF sort of driven some really interesting and good programs around making sure that's more highlighted. And um, I, I do think that's a really good progressive area. I, I, I don't know how the you know um, transparency piece would work because if for private businesses, because you're probably also then allowing the managers to have to tell them what they're on and how many privately owned businesses in agribusiness are going to be sort of doing that. So that would be the bit where I'm sort of thinking if I'm trying to go into a business to convince them to do it, you know, that's the problem versus um, the gender piece, I think is a really is an area that a lot of businesses have become a lot more uh, uh, progressive around saying to us and even communicating to us expectations around, um, you know, how this will work and what they'll do. And, and you note it's very common conversation now around, um, how that sort of all, all you know, progressing within those businesses too. And, and it's, you know, probably been an area of focus for a number of those businesses for a few years as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting point because I think it could, it could kind of, with, with the right kind of structure, it could draw, it could be a useful HR-based tool because if you've got people that look and say, oh, I'm not getting paid as much as so-and-so, I, I think I'm just as important. Now that might be that might be a wrong assumption on their behalf, but then if it's if there's objectivity around it and say, well, here, you know, it's it's one of those things where you can kind of use it as a as a motivational thing to say, well, this is actually what that particular person. Well, it can be a, a mo- it can be a motivate it can be a motivator or a demotivator. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the bit too is what are you driving value in as well. So I, I think it works specifically in say a sales model. Um, where you've got clear sort of outcomes that can be driven by that type of, you know, revenue. Yeah, if you, can, if you can objectively measure Correct. something. But yeah. versus then say, you know, I'd also know of a couple of sort of trading managers that aren't managing their own books, for example, but are developing other people. Arguably, you know, what are the commercials they're pushing through that are measurable versus the overall performance and, you know, people development. So, so I think it's there's so many areas that can become complicated in measuring value it's tough to be able to be visible about it, but it's also then tough to be able to um, measure that effectively. But I, I think the areas that people need to be very much, that would be maybe sort of supportive of it is, you know, clear brackets and clear sort of areas of expectation for anyone to come in. And, and, and to my knowledge, in terms of where that is, if we're dealing with a number of businesses, you've got a bracket in mind that you want someone to come into and it doesn't matter really, you know, um, sometimes what their salary has been. It, it can be for some businesses, but it's really sometimes more driven by, you know, what you're looking for as well and, and what you think that person can bring into the business rather than saying, well, they're only going to be worth X amount. Mm. Mm. Yeah, fair, that's, a, what, I guess, a fair point. Yeah. So, so you, you spend all day looking at your jobs and you, so you probably know what everybody in the industry is getting paid uh, or, or most people. What, what, what about, uh, you know, podcasters agricultural podcasters i genuinely sometimes have sat here wondering what are these folks getting paid so that's a good interesting question (laughs) uh i can i can count it on on 
I can count it on the fingers on one hand if my fingers have been cut off. So, but, but you know, I guess in, in all seriousness, though, in terms of, in terms of, you know, with, with the industry in general, do you think, you know, over, over the next couple of years that there'll be a bit of a, a reversal back to like a normality? You know, do you think that this is a blip? Do you think that the, um, that this, this, con- this yeah, conflict sort of high levels? It's, I'd say it's the same as it's cyclical, like most industry groups, to be honest. I mean, there's issues that will arise in the jobs market and the employment market that are similar to any industry. So production industries, you know, machinery, everybody's got their issues that will pop up around supply. Same thing happens in the employment industry. I think the bit that people need to be more um, aware of sometimes is the expectation in the employment market is that there will be candidates available if we go look for someone. But the actual reality of that scenario isn't the case where, you know, I, I like to look at the commodity and, and obviously being in Melbourne with the grains market, um, you know, the expectation that people are still putting through graduates and putting through sort of, you know, developing people across these broader roles in industry. But most businesses don't run, you know, the traditional growth services or traditional graduate programs anymore. So, so where are those people coming from? So, so, so I think it's one of those ones of the expectation that, you know, people are growing on the trees that are going to be able to just line up for roles isn't the case. And, and I think also that's an opportunity for businesses to be able to differentiate themselves by, you know, developing good programs, developing more attractive tools around, well, what can we do to attract talent versus assuming there's talent um, that will come and knock on the door. Um, and also probably being aware of other input impacts of how that affects your, your you know, your candidate satisfaction of people. Come to, the other bit too is, you know, when you're recruiting people, you know, how do you manage that process? How do you communicate? How do you actually make sure people have got the right expectations of a job when they join to avoid people sort of bouncing back out straight away and, you know, miscommunicating what they're actually doing and actually focusing on that as a business plan rather than just sort of seeing a farming as a business plan. It's, you know, people are an important element of that as well. So I've got another another question as well. Like we've, I've got, I've got a friend of mine, yeah, who Scottish girl, uh, you might know her actually. She used to work in WA farmers, Megan McNeil. Uh, but anyway, she is. She used to do their marketing, but now she sets up a business on personal branding, which is a relatively sort of new thing, I guess. Or not new, but it's it's all about you know staff members pushing their own personal brand to an mm. extent. How, how does that fit in? Because that's, that's a fairly that's a fairly new sort of way of looking at things of, of staff members, you know, having their own sort of brand as well as the company brand. How does that fit in in a traditional industry? It's, yeah, because when, when you when you think about it from like our point of view, like Matt and I are, are fairly out there, I guess that's probably one way of saying it. You know, we have social media, our names. You know, we, guess, we write yeah. we write articles. We we have, you know, we have this podcast which is listened to by my auntie Julie, Linda, and half of Matt, Eastern Europe, half of Eastern Europe. Uh, but other than that, it's it's a bit of fun. But how, how does how does a traditional company because we because we know from our own experience that there's traditional companies out there that weren't happy with the worker from home, because if you're not in the office, you're not bloody working. Mm-hmm. And and then, but how do they deal with a company where you've got? You know, I can see a lot of people out there who have got building their own brand, their own personal employment brand, at the same time as working on, you know, whether they're working for a grain company or a livestock company or whatever. Yeah. How, how, how does that fit in? Oh, look, I think it's sort of, it's twofold where you don't, the companies need to be careful of that generation coming through and not stepping on the toes around how that works. So I think it's twofold in the sense of the companies probably need to be aware of that portfolio can both develop and and increase sort of, you know, maybe um, an understanding of it because they're seen as progressive by the generation below and, and seen as sort of the voice of what they're talking about in terms of you know, common sense and, you know, they're on various boards, but also then the individuals have to be pretty aware also, I think, sometimes of what are the commercials they're actually bringing to that business too. So I think, you know, it's a really tough blend of individual marketing versus what that what the assumption that people assume is that they're always growing and the growth is good and people are probably always aware of what they're saying versus if I was to go to say someone now and say, oh, look, Andrew Whitelaw is interested in this job. Do you want to come and get him? 
they're probably also then going to be like, oh, no, I heard, you know, I've heard of he said this on this podcast and he's annoyed this customer of ours and we can't annoy this or he's tweeted at this bloke, we can't have that in our business. That's going to also affect your employment chances as well. So I think it's a catch-22 both ways and it's one of those ones where I think businesses need to be progressive enough to say, right, well, who's the right fit for what we're trying to achieve and do, but also the individual has to be aware of what they're putting out there will probably affect who wants to be associated with that type of branding as well. Um, and the, the one thing I probably would be saying, though, is most businesses then need to be careful about not being so non so anti that, that they're not moving forward at all. And, and that's, that, that also catches up with you in terms of the market as well. So, you know, if you're looking to advertise or attract people into a business that they've seen as being very old school, where do you think that talent's going to come from that's not going to just be the same people that supplied for the last 20 to 30 years that hasn't helped that business grow? So, so that would be the question I'd be sort of putting it. And, and I think that's probably been shown in the current recruitment market is people being a lot more selective around the brands and the information they want to associate with individually um, speaking. And, and advice I give candidates a lot of the times is when they call up looking for advice on, you know, we might not be even working for them. They might just call up and say, hey, what do you think about this group? that's not really for us to be able to judge. It's really for you to be able to explain, well, why did you want to be associated with that person as part of your career? And, and to your point before, Matt, why is that motivating you to leave your current business to go work for this group? So you've got to be, companies have got to also be aware of how their leaders are being um, seen and how that marketing piece is working to attract people as well, not just customers, but people to also work from. Has, um, has the rise of social media and what people are putting on, their various different accounts, has that made your job easier to filter through um, the riffraff or to highlight and find maybe good candidates or, or not just looking at the traditional ways of, of, of an interview and a, and a CV to determine who you're going to put forward? Uh, you know, I, I presume if, if it's available to you, you're looking at you know, some of what they, can, what they do in their, I guess, private life. Oh, um, for sure. And, and it- a, a big, like we... To your point, like I remember two or three years ago, I did a course at the um, ICMJ in Wagga around LinkedIn profiles. And that was specifically what the ICMJ asked us to come and present to their students around how to build a LinkedIn platform because um, it was seen as a big area. So, so, you know, that's been a trend for a long period of time, but also we've got to give advice on how to actually best provide that to candidates as well on, you know, what's that done? We do background search, you know, um, on any candidate that's coming through for any socials. Um, you know, there, there's an area so, of so, so my background search will just be literally all about black pudding and Crocs. Correct. You know, but it's more about you know making sure that's you know yeah you're not breaking any of the actual areas. You know, because because the other bit the other red flag is there's no presence. So so the other red flag is the other end of it as well. So so I think yeah to your point, Matt, like it's the, the area that's probably the, the twofold there is then also LinkedIn's a really good way for us to be aware of probably leaders or thought leaders in the space as well and. You know, if there's roles that are being interestingly approached to us by industry groups or someone saying, hey, we're thinking of this type of profile, it's a very easy way to sort of be able to filter through who already is doing that in their personal life. Um, But, I mean, look, the challenge of recruiting in our sector and and most of the agri-sectors is somebody knows someone. So, So a lot of what we have to do is run a process, which is what we essentially have brought into by businesses, is to run the process. And a lot of advice we have to give is both to candidate and client. And, and a lot of that is, you know, measuring who do you know versus what do, what have you heard and what's actual factual and filtering through all that information to provide a, you know, a third party's perspective. And that can be, you know, using somebody's LinkedIn status. It could be using their, you know, the, the, the one thing that it's good and bad is, is you hear, oh, so-and-so I know down at the pub, worked with them 20 years ago, they don't rate them. And you're like, well, all right. And, and you'd, that would conversation would happen often, but it's okay. Well, why don't they rate them? And, and working through those um, old school issues that do, do sometimes occur in our industry where, you know, it's the same sort of thing as coming back to our conversation about graduates, not recruiting someone because they've never stepped onto a property because they've lived in Bandura or something like at near La Trobe the whole time, but you don't have an option for the next 12 months for someone to come into you to assist with you running a packing shed. So what one are you going to do? Do you, do you take the risk that's sort of a little bit out of ordinary and, get a great result potentially or, you know, understaff and then sort of put that that pressure on everyone else as well. So, you know, there's lessons that you've got to advise around. And I think advising is always around, this is what they are like online. We haven't seen anything, but you might want to do your own sort of background searches as well and, and making sure companies are just aware of that. But to individuals, hey, you know, you're saying a lot of stuff like this. You've said a lot of this. To be open, we're not going to put you forward because you've said that and, mm. and be pretty clear about it as well. Mm. 
Fair enough. If um, you sound like you do a bit in that kind of emerging space in terms of the you know going to things like the ICMJ um, and, uh, and 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 universities talking to different graduates in different areas. Um, if there, I'm presuming you've had this question multiple times before. Um, if you had like a you know a 15 year old coming through the mix, um, what would be your advice to you know direct them towards a key, you know, say a key industry or a key sector over the decade or so? Where do you reckon the real opportunities might be? Um, so so twofold. We have actually so sorry to, to a point I actually raised before about graduates. So we actually did a really progressive project over the last four years with horticultural and um, HIA and Hort Australia um, as it sort of changed into putting paid internships with farming groups into that university at a first and second year tier to really help attract people into the hort industry. And it was a really smart, progressive area. So essentially we were already engaging with all these universities, but what we were able to do was then say, hey, you know, if you're at summer, you should be going to work for, you know, Costas in this type of business or, or whoever it was. And they had actual roles for them to be able to walk into rather than hypothetically saying, hey, go pick berries or something. So the Hort, hort um, industry group were actually really progressive around designing with their growers programs, which was actually going to help them find people for the next, you know, five to 10 years. So suddenly everybody coming out isn't just being going into a, you know, a branch agro role. They're actually knowing what growing is and having access to those positions. Because sometimes the issue was happening. I mentioned before, Adelaide students would come out with great hoard experience, but that only go to Adelaide growers. Um, and they might not go to Swan Hill or they might not go to sort of, you know, areas that would be underserviced, even like Tassie, where there'd be fantastic opportunities. So Hort actually sponsored some really good sort of programs and, you know, the pork industry has done the same and, and a few other sort of um, industry groups have, have done similar type targeting programs at careers days. Um, if I was giving advice to students, and, and we often do, my, my advice is always pretty consistent. It's don't assume you know what you're going to do. And, and sort of to reverse what you've asked me, Matt, is, is almost go and experience everything that you don't want to do. So when you come out of uni, you can actually say to me, right, well, I don't want to do this, this and this, but I'm open to anything else and it becomes a lot easier to actually help students versus you know if I'm sitting with somebody who's told me I'm going to be a grain trader one day or I'm going to be the head of MLA or I'm going to do marketing for um, this horticultural industry that's not up to them so there's a lot of things that can happen in your career that'll change so really my advice to a lot of students when you're going through the industry is experience and go and work every and, and you know not every student can do it but if you can don't pull beers at your local pub just for because it's a casual job. Go find a job for three months on harvest, or you know, ride a you know, ride a tractor sort of on on whatever sort of property you can, or do fences for some contractor, and and actually in, enjoy what's happening because it's only a certain period of time in university. When if I was to go do it, most of them would turn around and go, "What's this thirty three year old weirdo doing trying to rock up for three months worth of work? Where are you at?" And a you're not fit enough to do that, so piss off. <laughs> yeah. Versus if you're a student. No one's going to say that sort of model to you. Everyone's going to be at some point have been a student. So they're all progressive enough to say, yeah, I remember that having to reach out to some bloke to get a coffee to give advice. That was mortifying. This kid's just done it to me. Why would I not get a coffee with them? Or why would I not give them a couple of weeks sort of work to tail the, you know, aggro in the car or, you know, that type of... So if you're a student, you should be progressive enough to try to find what doesn't work for you. And by trying multiple industries, it actually then helps filter through. So that's pretty, that's pretty good that's advice. A, that's, that's good advice. And it's probably a good place to, to wrap it up. I've, I've got another piece of advice for, for any of those students listening. This will be good. It is, is good to get as much knowledge about the industry as possible. And one of the best ways of getting that information on the industry is by listening to great conversations <laughs> between various people in the industry, you know, like we've got just now. So... Mm. So I would I would be recommending that people subscribe to Australia's leading agricultural podcast based within Ballarat. That includes. Have a you Scottish... actually have you actually measured that, or is that a? No, no we, we are. I can almost guarantee that we are the leading agricultural podcasters with a Scottish co-host in oh. Australia. Mm. Yeah, no, con I, no, con no contest. Matt, Matt's doing a bit of thinking, to be fair. Matt's doing a bit of thinking. <laughs> would be up there. <laughs> Top three. Uh, Top I think three. it was, it was, it was, it, I think it's a good time, Angela, you said to, to, um, to wind it up, but that was a, a good, a good point to end. I was just thinking as you, as you're talking about, you know, finding out what you don't want to do, 
and and how you also said about people saying at the early stages, I'm going to be this. I remember going back to being a high school student in the last few years back in the olden days, and I did actually did want to be a currency trader was what I was aiming for and got in it. And after 10 years or 12 years it was, I thought, oh, I can't do this forever. This is rubbish. And I got out of it. But, um, but it was, a, you know, to get to where I am now, it was a, and, and, and I'm not a young man anymore, but it was a process of, of a bit of trial and error there and being open, like you're saying, being open to, um, you know, opportunities and, and not being scared to have a crack at things that you maybe, you know, you've got transferable skills, but you haven't got, a specific skill set in and, and keeping that open mind, I think was, has been one of the, you know, the things really um, I've really, I realized after I'd kind of changed career a few times. So I think that's, that's excellent advice for, for those young people out there and, um, and, and a fitting way to, fitting way to end it. So I just want to appreciate you coming on Ryan and spending um, this time chatting with us and, and also letting us uh, pick your brains about it, an area where um, we didn't have much exposure to and, and knowledge of. It's been great. Thank you. More than welcome, and uh, it's a pleasure to see it's as turmoil, tumultuous off uh, offline as it is, as it sounds. <laughs> exactly right. Hey, thanks for listening, uh, everyone else, and see you when you've got nothing on. Ciao for now.